John chapter 5, verses 16 to 24. This is God's Word. Now this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. And by the way, disclaimer, Jews here referring to those in direct opposition to Jesus' claims to be Messiah. It's not a racial slur, okay? So this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because He did these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and He said, My Father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Amen, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead, don't you love how that's just assumed? For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. For whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Past tense. There was a well-known pastor a number of years ago named Donald Gray Barnhouse. And you've probably heard this illustration. Bill, have you met Donald Gray Barnhouse? Okay, he was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. I said that because he went to school there uh, and thought maybe he had met him. It would be something like meeting Elvis uh, for rock people, rock musicians. In one of his CBS radio morning programs, a question was posed to him and said, you know, this is just a thought. What if God gave up control of a particular city and allowed Satan, his great enemy, to have total control and power over that city? What would that city look like? That is a staggering Inspiring question, Barnhouse thought. He responded in a way that quite frankly surprised everyone. If Satan were given unhindered control of a city, he said that city would be beautiful. The lawns would be manicured to perfection. Flower beds would gleam with beauty. There would be no fences between yards because their neighbors would get along wonderfully with one another. They would share. There would be no divisions among them. Out in the city, you can forget about it. There would be no bars where men could go hide from their responsibilities and drink. There would be no houses of ill repute 
where women sell themselves into slavery. There would be no gambling. There would be no addiction. There would be no divorce. There would be no counseling centers. There would be no police forces. Husband would love wife. Wife would love husband. And children would be most responsive to their parents' commands. Churches would be filled to capacity. You couldn't find a seat in them. People would sit outside where the windows are. And when you listened in, people would sing with such power and force that you would marvel at the beauty. And in that church, the Gospel of Jesus Christ would never be preached. Barnhouse hit to the point of what can be one of the great dangers for anyone who wants to come near to or to be about the things of God. What is your motive? Why are you here? That is what Barnhouse was up to. Jesus is dealing with a very similar dilemma. He has encountered men who are charging Him with a crime. These men were called Pharisees, which in our world has a negative impulse. When you hear the word Pharisee, immediately the thought is, well, I know I'm not, or nor do I want to be one of them. However, understand that in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the preservers of good in their culture. They were very concerned about outside influences working their way into and infiltrating their society and giving bad ideas to their children. That was their concern. And these Pharisees were so committed to God's Word, they were not uncommitted, but committed to God's Word, that they memorized the first five books of the Scriptures. I can hardly memorize a single verse. And they memorized books at a time. They were men of great renown and repute and respect. They were the person, if they were to walk in this room now, you would say, there goes a man of God. But what they were after skirted around the central truth and thrust of the Scriptures, Jesus Christ and Him alone. And it was a frightening thought. And Jesus has this interaction with them following the healing of a man. Could you imagine? But Jesus didn't just heal a man, which is a nice and charitable thing. He did it on the day where you're not supposed to do anything It's protected. This was so precious to their culture, so precious to their society, that to do anything on that day is a direct affront to their traditional authority. Jesus violated the Old Testament Sabbath. He did. Jesus broke Sabbath. Unless, unless He is God. Because God cannot stop being God even on the day of rest. And that is the claim Jesus makes to these men who say to Him, what are you doing? 
My Father works until now, even on the Sabbath. And guess what? So do I. Jesus uses in this passage such terms of intimacy that when the Pharisees heard it, if they had hair, they would have lost it. And if they had no hair, they would have grown it. These are words because of our familiarity with Scripture or perhaps vacation Bible schools growing up that we see them and brush by them without a thought. But to those who heard Him, it was absolutely stunning that someone would say this. Verse 17. Verse 17. Jesus says, My Father is working and I am working. Verse 19. The Son can do nothing except what He sees His Father doing. Jesus uses terms of intimacy with the living God that these men would never have claimed for themselves. A little historical moment here. Pharisees, Jews in general, would have referred to God in the Father sense as a collective group. Never would they have thought of God the Father in the singular sense. It's He and it is I together. Jesus is claiming something here and they know it. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews sought all the more to kill Him. Yes, He was doing something on the Sabbath, verse 18, but He was also calling God His own Father. He has to die. They know that what He is saying is absolutely radical. And if it's true, it's going to change everything they have ever thought and conceived about their lives and what is proper and right for their society. They wanted manicured loans. They wanted the description Barnhouse was going after. And Jesus wanted something much more deep. He wanted their hearts. Not their lawns. He wanted their lives. Not their commitment to avoiding bad habits. He wanted all of them. And that was frightening. Jesus claims here something. This is what He's teaching. Jesus, the Nazarene, says, I am equal in essence. I am equal in power. I am equal in glory. I am equal in judgment and honor with God, Father. You and I have heard that a lot in our lives. And it's not as stunning to us. But I want you to understand, I want you to get a feel for what these people are experiencing. Someone has just claimed, standing in front of us, to be the only possible God. That is a dangerous place to be. This is perhaps the most radical claim by any serious leader in world history. You can study them. They're all over the place. Jesus existed. We know that. He was a historical figure. But the claim He makes is the most perplexing, strange, radical challenging of any leader of any religious or political movement in the history of humanity. For instance, if you were to go to Gautama, the Buddha, 
the enlightened one, founder of the system of enlightenment we call Buddhism today, and you were to ask him, now, how do we connect as human beings with whatever's up there? We know something's up there because we sense it. There's something not right in us. There's something not right in the world, and I want to know what's up there. How do I get there? Buddha would answer this way. I discovered the eightfold path to wisdom. And in that eightfold path, you will discover the four noble truths. That life is suffering. That life is pain. But that life is and can be broken in a cycle of lives from which you can eventually be delivered. The goal being nirvana. But don't miss the point. Buddha would say, I found this path. You can find it too. Maybe fast forward to something more familiar like Muhammad, the prophet. If you were to ask Muhammad, who borrowed much of his beliefs from Christianity, how do we get there? How do we connect with whatever's up there? How is it that we make this connection between the distance? He'd say, I found the truths summarized in what we call the five pillars of Islam. If you follow me from what I learned, then you will see that there is truth. Maybe fast forward that to even our day where we encounter one of the most sort of vocal religious groups in the past 200 years, the modern atheist. The modern atheist would tell us, well, how is it there is nothing up there, but I realize there has to be some meaning in life, so what can I do to connect to that? And the modern secular atheist would say, why don't you leave a legacy? Why don't you invest in something that's going to leave a name behind that perhaps your children can benefit from? Maybe you can leave a large sum of money to the library and it'll carry your name. That's what you want to aim for. Do something meaningful. Give your children a name to be proud of. You notice in all of those, the uniqueness of what Christ is claiming is so far away from what is being spoken in those responses. Jesus says, look at Me. Me. That's a radical claim. The others will tell you, here's the path I found, follow that. Jesus is saying, here I am, come to Me. Now, as C.S. Lewis said, what Jesus is teaching here is either this. Here stands before us either... either the most senile, megalomaniac, lunatic that has ever walked the face of the earth, or God Almighty. And we either pity Him as a fool, or we fall and we worship. See what Jesus is teaching here? Jesus isn't making, a, a, Jesus isn't making an appeal if you will. He is making a bold statement. He's not saying that if you were to believe and trust in Me, then I will become truth to you. He's saying, here I stand, I'm the truth. Either get in line with it or get in opposition to it. But there is no in-between. Now, if you get in line with it, you're going to find that this is what you were looking for, even if you follow those other paths because you're not after some other goal. I'm the goal. I'm the subject, and I am the object. Jesus says, look at Me.
question we would ask is, why does He teach that? Well, verse 21. That is what Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches something incredibly exclusive, incredibly beautiful, incredibly challenging, radical about Himself. Why does He teach this? Well, verse 21. It's as true for them as it is for us. And I think it's beautiful how the Lord, even in this discussion, appeals to His enemies who are confronting Him. He says, verse 21, Listen, the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom He will. I'm sorry. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Greater works will He show Him so that you will marvel. <laughs> Coming to Jesus means that you marvel. Mar- Why does He do this? So that you will marvel. Verse 23, So that also you may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. For who does not honor the Father doesn't honor the Son. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. You may not connect in other words, apart from the Son. And your attempt to connect apart from the Son is not really to connect. It's to have nice lawns, but not salvation. I want to show you something in this Gospel of John that is stunning. This, this answers why I think Jesus teaches this here and why I chose this passage to sort of jump into. I want you to notice something about this passage we read. It was a discussion about something. What was that discussion? The Sabbath. There was a doctrinal debate going on. There was a political issue. Jesus had challenged something and they wanted to get to the bottom of that issue. What's going on here? You broke the Sabbath. What gives you the right to do that? Do you not believe that the Sabbath is God's law? Notice how Jesus responds. Whoever honors the Father honors the Son, and he who honors the Son honors the Father. I want you to see that the logic Jesus uses is actually... Sorry is a little bit odd. And this is a pattern that the writer of this Gospel uses again and again and again. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, bear with us for just a moment. But I want to take you back through, briefly, the Gospel of John. He wrote it so that you will marvel. But the first miracle Jesus performs is at a wedding in Cana where He turned water into wine. And following that water into wine, Jesus was revealing something about His creative power and wonder and something about the Messiah coming. There's a lot of old stuff written about it that that sort of stuff would start to happen. And then He goes to the temple and He says, He clears it. There are men in God's church selling things inside the court walls. They've made a mockery of God's religion. They had, they had created this sort of marketing uh, church strategy. And Jesus goes in with whips and He clears them out. And they come to Him and they say, what authority do you have to do this? And Jesus says, tear this temple down and in three days I will rebuild it. And John tells us, and He was speaking about Himself. 
not strike you as odd yet. Did you hear the question? By what authority do you do this? Well, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it. That had to leave them scratching their heads just a bit. Next scene, same movie, chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he says, Good teacher, it is obvious that you are from God. Unless you're born again, you by no means will enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, a great teacher, comes to Jesus and pays him a compliment. How do you respond to compliments? Jesus should have said, according to our rules of politeness, thank you very much. That was a very kind thing for you to say. He doesn't. Nicodemus says, you are obviously a teacher sent from God. Jesus responds, unless you're born again, you by no means will enter the kingdom of heaven. I just paid you a compliment. Chapter 4, same movie, next scene. The woman at the well. A woman who had had five husbands. She knew sitting with Jesus, He knew her all too well. So afraid of having Him scrape that deep and say, I I know who you are, sweetheart. It's okay. Rather than doing that, she engages Him in a theological debate. She says, you're a Jew, right? Jews want to worship on Mount Zion and we want to worship on Mount Horeb. Who's right? How does Jesus answer the theological debate? He says, I'm the living water. If you drink from Me, you'll never thirst again. Do you see a pattern develop here? The people bring to Jesus all sorts of issues and concerns that they want addressed. Lord, our problem is we want to know what Your authority is. Our problem is we have this compliment to pay You. You're obviously a great teacher. Give me a good teaching. Entertain me. The woman at the well. I've got a little, got a little. You know, I I went to Sunday school. Answer, riddle me this, so-called Messiah. Everybody wants something. Jesus gives them Himself. You see the point. Everybody wants something, and Jesus gives them Himself. Well, friends, here's the gist of it. There is such a danger by accepting what we might call informational knowledge. Informational knowledge. Well, that's a nice story. Jesus, that's good. That's a nice thing. Without the reality that it is actually a transformational knowledge. And what you deal with in Christianity, whether you've been in this church since a baby or this is your first time here, What you deal with here is a Lord that says, I'm a person. And I will be known as such. One of the problems that I think we have with Christianity is that it is too personal. It's about a person. Not an idea. Not an ethic. Not a morality. But a person. And many of us come near to Jesus with that reality. We would like Him to answer our questions. Why am I here? Why do I suffer? Why is there pain? If you're a good God, why is there suffering? We come with questions. Philosophy. We also come with ethics. Well, 
we want a community that has certain standards. We want our children to have a certain way about them. We come to Jesus for ethics. We also come to Jesus because we want perhaps belonging. I'm lonely. I need someone. We have scores of issues that we might come to Jesus for. But let me just warn you, when you come to Jesus, He's going to say, here I am. Jesus may not answer your question until you've dealt with Him standing in front of you. Then, He will answer those questions. What we deal with in Christianity is a God who says first things first. Your marriage is of great concern to me. Your job and your situation financially, they are great concerns to me. Your goals in life, those matter to me. That's what Jesus says. They matter to me. Your marriage, the one that's falling apart, that matters to me. But first things first, what do you make of me? There is no need answering those dilemmas apart from that truth. I will only be giving you counsel, but not life. Jesus comes to give life. What do you make of Him? Jesus tells us, I'm no mere philosopher. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a marketing strategy. I'm not a slogan for billboard signs in communities. I'm the Lord God Almighty. And I will be dealt with as such. Friend, what do you make of Jesus? You're human. Therefore, you have a multiplicity of issues that you are bearing with. And you want to find some help in that. Or you want to find answers to the big questions. Or you want to find a sense of belonging. What do you make of Jesus? It is a superfluous, wasteful, and useless venture otherwise. What do you do with Him? What do you make of Him? There is no getting around Jesus. But here's the good news. In that Jesus you will be more loved, more received, more accepted, more doted over and forgiven than you could possibly imagine. And those things that harangue you to death suddenly find a new light. Let me encourage you. If you know the Lord and you've known Him for a hundred years, or if you don't know Him at all, you still have to deal with this. What do you make of Jesus? Let's pray. For God Almighty, we have come to a very delicate and tender place because, Lord, You have you've been very forthright in this Word. I know my heart, Lord, it's to want to debate issues. I want to, I, want to, I want to address real problems. That's what I want to do. And Lord, that is a great concern of Yours. But it is not the first thing you are. Help us as we stand confronted by You, Lord, to gladly recognize that You are not indeed the lunatic, but You are the Lord. And help us not to pity You and those who come after You, but Lord, to recognize 
uh, we have no choice. We must bow and we must confess. You are Lord. Give us the grace. Give us, give us the return, Lord, the ability to return to You. We pray these things now in Your dear name and for Your dear sake. Amen.